0: This morning's passage comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there still a man to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Have you ever felt like
1: maybe you've blown it one too many times? You've somehow missed God's will. Like the woman who came to me who recounted how she had a number of poor choices in her life that got her to where she was today, and she felt a lot of regrets, guilt, shame. Oh, she could kind of avoid it most of the time, but when she thought about it, she felt that God couldn't really use her like he wanted to because of all that. I think it's common for us, maybe all of us feel this at times, but somehow I just blew it, you know, God's, God's will was a perfect will, and, and because of choices I've made, I've missed that, and now I'm down to his second or third or fourth choice for me, and oh, he may use me in some small way, but not like he could have. He'll forgive me, but I'm missing out somehow. Well, let me say that this, I think, is a huge error in thinking. It's just simply theologically incorrect. And yet so many of us think that, that somehow God has a dot that's His perfect will for me. And if I don't make the right choices in my life, then somehow I'll miss His perfect will for me. I just think that's terrible theology, and it binds us up in regrets. And guilt. See, I think the truth is that God understands our our struggles, our failures, even our sinfulness. And God takes those into account in His plans for us. God is a deliverer. He is a redeeming God who takes even our failures to accomplish His will for the world and for us. Isn't that amazing? And I think this passage today that we've read part of, as we look at it together in 1 Samuel, will help us see more clearly how God wants to use us even as we are. So let's pray, and we'll look at this passage together. Gracious Lord, it's a miracle we're even here. We don't deserve your love and forgiveness, and yet you give it. Help us, Lord, to understand that grace, that love, that forgiveness, That we might trust you to be our deliverer, our shelter, our portion, more fully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this passage that Larry just read, it begins by God giving them their king. Remember, the people demanded a king. We don't want to trust you, God. Trusting an invisible God is just too hard. So give us a king, a physical king. We want to be like all the other nations because that's easier. <laughs> but as he does so, as he gives them their king, and that's what he does in this passage, he first of all reminds them of their re- relationship with him. Again, verse 18, I brought Israel, the Lord God says, I brought Israel up from Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. He reminds them that he has redeemed them, that he called them out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. He broke the power of the most powerful nation on earth, Egypt, called out Israel through the ten plagues, led them across the Red Sea, destroyed Pharaoh's army, And then as he brought them through the wilderness, he protected them and then brought them across the Jordan River and into the promised land where he defeated their enemies, defeated the kings. Then over 400 years in the book of Judges, every time they cried out to him, he delivered them. It says he delivered them from the oppressors, the kingdoms of those oppressing him. So he wants them to remember their relationship with him that he has delivered them, that he has cared for them and loved them all the way through. But he doesn't stop there. He says, today, verse 19, you have rejected your God who delivers, present tense, delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses. The word calamities is really evils. Whatever evil you face, either internally or external attacks from the evil one, Or from the squeezings, distresses means squeezing. place you get squeezed so tight, you know know, when circumstances do that, where you just feel you can't move, you don't know what to do, and it's hard and you feel squeezed and trapped by your circumstances. He says, I deliver you from all those. I am your present deliverer. You see, he says, I am involved in your life and still delivering you even though you're rejecting me. But they have rejected him. They're looking for a king to rule them instead of God. And so God keeps working in this passage to call them back to him, to trust him as their deliverer. Now, isn't that the constant battle for all of us? To trust him? Uh, We look to other things to deliver us, but he keeps calling us back to trust him. Will we trust him or will we trust in something or someone else? And this has been the battle for every human being ever since Adam and Eve ate of that forbidden fruit. When Satan, the serpent, remember, tempted them and said, Hey, did God really say don't eat of this fruit? God's holding out on you. (laughs) You can't trust Him. He knows that if you eat of the fruit, you'll be like God. But God had told the truth. They died spiritually the minute they ate, exactly like God had said. And ever since then, we've struggled to trust Him. God, are you really going to deliver me? Are you enough for me? And can I be satisfied in you and what you give to me? Or do I need something else? To deliver me. And so that's the battle. That's the struggle we all face. And so God confronts them with that. He reminds them, I've redeemed you. I've blessed you for all these hundreds of years. And you're still rejecting me by asking for a king. So how does God respond? Well, I think if I were God at that point, I would say, "Um, you know, Israel, you gave it a good shot, but I'm kind of done with you now. (laughs) And uh, I think I'll go find someone else to try. But he doesn't. He's far more gracious than I am. We think, I messed up. God must be angry with me. He'll put me on the shelf. The reasonable reasonable response would be for God to judge them. But God's love is not reasonable. It's wild. It's unreasonable. It's far beyond our human response could ever be. Because he keeps working with them, he gives them their king and he gives them every opportunity to be blessed with that king. And he's patient with them for 500 years of kings, (laughs) continually reaching out to them with his love and his grace and trying to help them learn to trust him. God's love is intrusive. It keeps pursuing us, pursuing us. So God reminds them first of their relationship, and then he gives them the king. And he publicly announces Saul as king. And if you read the passage carefully, you see how God is guiding this whole process. He doesn't say, fine, you want a king? Go choose a king. Go do your own thing. No. Everything about it is God's hand involved in it, caring for them, encouraging them, giving them a king, and giving that king, King Saul, Every opportunity to be a godly king. In the end, he doesn't choose that, but God's giving him that opportunity. And the author of 1 Samuel wants to make it really clear that God's in this whole process. If you read it carefully, what was just read, you know, they they say, Okay, we'll choose the king by lot. So they cast lots. It's kind of like flipping a coin. We don't know exactly how they did it but it was their way of seeking God's will when God's will wasn't clear. And so they narrowed it down to the tribe of Benjamin and then his family and then to Saul himself. And then when Saul's hiding, it says the Lord, they sought the Lord and the Lord showed him where he was hiding. (laughs) The Lord's in this all the way. And then when they need uh, to, when, when Saul needs support, He needs an army. Verse 26, Saul went to his house of Gibeah, and the valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. God even provides his army for him. You see, God could have judged Israel, but instead, in his grace, he gives them a king like they wanted and provides exactly what the king needs. Public support, warriors to fight in his army, the support of the prophet Samuel and on and on you you see God's grace here and his grace is like that towards us he knows we struggle to trust him and he keeps reaching out with his love and his grace towards us now let me just say that there are foreshadowings in this section about what kind of king Saul will eventually be in our passage today he looks pretty good but there's little foreshadowings the author has put in, and that's what I love some of this history, the way it's been written, because there, there's truth all through this. There's foreshadowings that Saul will not be a great king. For example, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin had been a rebellious tribe and actually got wiped out by the whole nation of Israel earlier, all but 600 warriors, because they'd rebelled against the Lord. So he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Secondly, uh, that weird passage where it says, oh, behold, he's hiding himself among the baggage. Isn't that strange? I mean, why do you think Saul, who's just been anointed king by Samuel privately and now is being chosen king, why is he hiding among the baggage? I think it's a foreshadowing of Saul's heart. It's a picture into his godless heart. That he's afraid to do God's will. And we see that expanded on in the passages to come. That when it really comes down to doing God's will, he's afraid to. He'd rather please people or himself than God. Uh, Another foreshadowing we see in this passage is that, kind of interesting, Saul's described as very tall, a head taller than everyone else. Sounds pretty impressive. But up to this point in the Old Testament, do you know who's described as tall, taller than anyone else up to this point? Only the giants of the land that were enemies of Israel, the Anakim and the Raphaim. And there's a hint there that Saul's going to be like them, (laughs) rather godless. There's a dark side to him. But even though God knows all that, God still blesses Saul in our passage and gives him every opportunity to be a good king. That's amazing, amazing grace of God. God does everything. He's gracious. He's a deliverer. He provides all we need to be successful. He saves us from hell, but he does so much more than that, folks. We put our faith in him. He's our redeemer. He's our deliverer. But he also delivers us day by day, minute by minute. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. So he gives Saul every chance to be a good king. Now in this next section, chapter 11, God empowers their king. He gives them a king, now he empowers their king. And let me read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 11. It says, Now Nahash the Ammonite... Let me stop there. Nahash. He's the king of the Ammonites. He's an enemy of Israel. Nahash is the Hebrew word for snake. In fact, it's exactly the same word for the serpent, the snake, in Genesis 3 who betrayed Adam and Eve. So keep that in mind as you're thinking about Nahash, this enemy of Israel. Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us. And we'll serve you. They say, you know what? Hey, uh, you're more powerful than us. We're kind of isolated here. So you know what? We'll make a deal with you. Let's make a covenant and we'll, we'll be your servants. You win. But Nahash, the Ammonites, said to them, I will make it with you on this condition, that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you. Thus, I will make it a reproach on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, let us alone for seven days that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then if no one is to deliver us, we will come out to you. (laughs) This is a horrible situation, isn't it? I mean, here's this king, this powerful Ammonite king. And he has said to Jabesh Gilead, he says, "Uh, yeah, I'll make a covenant with you, but only if I get to gouge out every one of your right eyes. Now think about what that meant. In that culture, I mean, you, you fought. You know, if you're right-handed, your right eye was everything for shooting, for depth perception, peripheral vision. You couldn't fight without it. You, they tended to hold their shields up and hide their left eye behind that and just look with their right eye. But without that, they're much more exposed. I mean, it's just they couldn't fight. It would destroy their ability to make war. The terms aren't very favorable, are they, (laughs) to Jabesh Gilead? Let me expand on this by showing you this map just so you understand a little bit more what's going on here. So Jabesh Gilead is up here. The Jordan River runs down the middle of this map here, down to the Dead Sea. So Israel, the nation of Israel, is primarily over here on the west side of the Jordan River. So Jabesh Gilead is way over here. It's exposed. Ammon where Nahash comes from, is down here. So he's come up, he's attacked Jabesh Gilead, and they're vulnerable. They're isolated. So they sue for peace, but he doesn't give them very good terms. So they say, hey, give us seven days, we'll see if anybody will come help us. And he says, okay, I'll go along with that. Now that doesn't seem very smart, does it? But if you understand a little bit of the history, actually it's pretty smart. Because Jabesh-Gilead was a city that at the end of the book of Judges, so it was right before Samuel, right before this time, had not helped the rest of Israel fight Benjamin, punish Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, when they rebelled against the Lord and wouldn't help all the other tribes of Israel, the other 11 tribes. Because Jabesh-Gilead would not go help the other tribes, all the other tribes came and destroyed Jabesh Gilead. Killed every person except 400 virgins. That's it. And they gave those women to the 600 Benjamites that were left to renew the tribe, etc. But think about it. Nahash the serpent, the snake, is sitting there going, Oh, you want to go ask for help from the people who just not very long ago destroyed your whole city and now you've just barely got it going again? Yeah, I'll take that bet. They're not going to help you. So he's convinced that they're dead. They're in trouble. Yeah, seven days. That will just increase your fear and increase your shame. <laughs> I don't think they're going to help you. So notice arrogance. Notice confidence. Go ahead and try to get help. Nahash is a perfect picture of Satan. Why his name is Snake, who is out to destroy us, the people of God, out to maim us, (laughs) destroy our ability to fight the spiritual battles we face every day. And Jabesh Gilead is in big trouble. Listen to what happens, verse 4. Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and spoke to these words in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted their voices and wept. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and he said, what's the matter with the people that they weep? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. So Saul's way down here in Gibeah, way down low, and the messengers come down, they come down and they talk, they're telling everybody, he comes in from the field and says, what's going on? They tell him, and the Spirit of God anoints him, empowers him. Spirit of God fell on him in power. God steps into this man's life with power. Everywhere in scripture where it says the spirit of God fell on a man or came upon on a man and powered him for a purpose. It's because God wants to reveal his power, that he's in control, that it's his doing, that he's at work. And he can do it throughout the Old Testament, either on a godly person or an ungodly person. He did it with Bezalel who created the temple. Amazing creativity and artwork and all of that, it says the Spirit of God came upon Bezalel so he could do this mighty work for God. But it also says the Spirit of God fell on Balaam. Remember the prophet of Moab who was this evil guy who was an enemy of Israel, but he tried to prophesy against Israel, but every time he tried, the Spirit of God made him give a blessing. <laughs> you see, the Spirit of God can come on people and accomplish His purpose. We don't ever have to fear any person. Because God's more powerful, even the most godless person, ungodly person, God's more powerful. And when he wants to use someone for his purposes, I don't care if they're an earthly king or who they are, whether they follow him or not, God can use them for his purposes. God is in control. He is sovereign. And never forget that. When the political system seems unstable or you're wondering what's happening with the economy or whatever, remember that God is in control. He's more powerful than any, any of that. We can trust Him to be our deliverer. So listen to verse 7 and 8. What does this angry, empowered Saul do? He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying... Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. He numbered them in Bezek, and the sons of Israel were 300,000 people, and the men of Judah, 30,000. It's an amazing scene here. Saul is empowered, and he cuts his, his oxen up and sends the parts all over Israel to let them know, Look. This is serious. I'm calling you forth. This hadn't happened before in Israel. And imagine what that was like, you know. You're waiting and the UPS man shows up. And, oh, it's something from Saul. I wonder what it is. Part of an ox. (laughs) Uh, Gee, I think we better show up. So it says they all showed up. 330,000 men traveled from all over Israel and met at Bezek. Right up here, 15 miles from Jabesh, Gilead. God uses Saul to get these people together, to empower them, to prepare them. And notice that it says, the dread of the Lord fell upon all Israel. This is God's doing, right? Are you getting the picture here that nothing can prevent God's will from happening ultimately? No matter how bad things might look, God will accomplish his purpose in your life. You can trust him. You can trust him. So, this really incredibly huge army, 330,000 people gather in Bezek, and they're gathering now to help Jabesh Gilead, not to wipe them out. They said to the messengers who had come, verse 9 Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow, by the time the sun's hot, you will have deliverance. So the messengers went and told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Yeah, I would think so. <laughs> then the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we'll come out to you. This is what they said to Nahesh, the snake. Tomorrow we'll come out to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. <laughs> there is an army of 330,000 people coming. They just left out that part. Verse 11, the next morning Saul put the people in three companies and they came, they hiked all night, the 15 miles from Bezek, crossed the Jordan River over to Jabesh Gilead. They came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, who is he that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said... Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, Yahweh, the Lord, has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Credible victory. And notice that Saul gives God the glory. God's the one who... He knew this was God's victory. God is the one who delivers. God is the one... Not this huge army. Uh, The army was just God's instrument. God's tool to accomplish his purposes. So the passage ends, verse 14 and 15. And Samuel said to the people, Come, let's go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal. And there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. They offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is really the high point of Saul's kingship right here. Time of great rejoicing. They recognized the Lord had given them the victory. And Sp- Saul even speaks to the glory of God as the one who worked deliverance for them. So, my question is we look at this story, this kind of amazing picture of God working in Israel, even though they don't deserve it, blessing them that they don't deserve it. What can we learn from this? I want to highlight six truths. Six truths. Number one, this passage is a reminder that we are at war. There is a snake, a nahash, a serpent, who is out to maim us and destroy our faith, destroy our walk with God to get us enslaved to guilt and regret and shame so that we hide away. But we need to remember that when we get attacked with those thoughts, those regrets from the past, that that's an attack. That's Satan. And we need to say, hey, get out of here. God has forgiven me. Yeah, I don't deserve his love, but I've got it. He died for me. And therefore, he and I are okay. We are at war. Don't forget it. You're being attacked. And the enemy would love to enslave us to sin and death and regret and shame. Secondly, I think we learned from this passage that deliverance comes from the Lord. We've seen it over and over again in this passage. He delivered us initially, brought us to himself. If you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you are redeemed. You've been saved by him. But even more than that, he is constantly delivering you every moment. Do you realize that? We forget that sometimes. God is at work protecting you from evil from the distresses of life, you think, well, my life's pretty hard already. Do you realize that everything that comes into your life, even the temptations, even the circumstances, all of that is filtered through God's love. He only allows to reach you what is part of His greater plan for you. Because he loves you so much. He only gives you what you can handle that will be part of his plan to help you know him better and trust him more. He is your deliverer, and he is constantly delivering you even when you don't know it. So we can trust him as our deliverer. Not a political candidate can deliver us, not a parent, not a child, not a spouse, not a job not a bank account. Yeah, these are uncertain times. Praise God for uncertain times because they're reminders to us of how much we need to trust Him all the time, no matter what's happening in our lives. Third great truth, and this is amazing to me because I don't get it, but it's true. God redeems even our bad choices even our sinful choices. Do you get that? When you make a bad choice, just turn back to him because he can even use that. Some of you have made very bad choices in your past and yet if you walk with him you begin to see how he uses even those because of your past you're able to connect with certain people who have struggled with similar things in ways and God has ways of using all that to grow you up in him. God redeems even our bad choices. As He gives Israel every opportunity to continue trusting Him, He does for us. Romans 8.28, For God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. God will use everything, even your failures. So turn back to Him. Trust Him with that, even when you fail. I have a clock on my wall in my office here. If you look at it, it's old, gnarled wood. It's myrtle wood. Myrtle wood only grows in Israel and the Oregon coast. Got this on the Oregon coast. It's a beautiful piece of wood. But what created its beauty was going through all kinds of storms, battles. It got battered, hammered by the wind and the rain. And that created incredible beauty. The things that God allows in your life are part of His plan to create a life of incredible beauty. If we will just cling to Him as our deliverer in the midst of those things. Fourth truth God can even use a Saul. God can even use a Saul. Do you see yourself as a Saul sometimes? Afraid, faithless, hiding among the baggage? God loves you. And He will provide every opportunity for you to trust Him, as He did for Saul. But, number five, and this is just a a bit of a caveat here this doesn't give us license to choose sin. God redeems our wrong choices, but it doesn't mean we can go around just purposely making wrong choices. Because ultimately, in the end, Saul gets rejected by God. He had every opportunity, but he gets rejected in the end. And it's just an encouragement to us every time we fail to keep going back to him and his forgiveness and his love because God can use even a Saul. <laughs> and then number six, finally. And here's amazing. As I think about Israel choosing, demanding a king, choosing not to trust God, but to they wanted a human king. They couldn't trust an invisible God. Point six is that God loved you and me enough to give us a human king so we would have every opportunity to trust him. He knows how hard it is for for us to trust an invisible God. So what did he do? God himself became human, was born as a baby, so that He could walk around on earth, become one of us, and know that we can relate to Him and understand Him. And He lived and He died for us and carried our sins so that the barrier between us and Him could be broken forever and we could always trust Him as our Deliverer. God knows it's hard for us to trust in someone who's Not human, so he became human. Now you may say, well, that was 2,000 years ago. I, I don't see him today walking around. Well, he's walking around in the people of God. But also, if you want to know what Jesus was like as a human, read the Gospels. We have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that are four sides of a beautiful jewel that if you read all four, they give us a complete picture of who God is as revealed in Jesus Christ as He walked on earth. So live in the Gospels if you are having a hard time trusting Jesus and His love for you and His deliverance of you. Live in the Gospels and get to know Him. Our King is a human King, but not like other nations. He's a God who came and died for us. That's His love and His forgiveness. He's a God of grace, a humble King, who died, that we might have life. I want to end, before we take communion, but end this part with a prayer from Thomas Kempis that was written in 1400s. May you be blessed in all your works, O Lord, for though I am unworthy of any good thing, your goodness never ceases to do well by me. And to many others who are unfriendly to you, and who are even turned fully against you. Turn us, therefore, O Lord, turn us to yourself again, that we may be henceforth loving, thankful, humble, and devout to you. For you are our help, you are our strength, and all our virtue in body and in soul, and no other except you. To you, therefore, be joy and glory everlasting in the bliss of heaven. Amen.